So it's appropriate this morning that we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, and what we're considering is the grace of God. Acts chapter 15, familiar with it, it is the account of the Jerusalem Council. And if you've been reading through the book of Acts as we've been going, you know, last week we covered chapter 12 and we sort of skipped chapters 13 and 14. And that's because chapters 13 and 14 really set up the backdrop for chapter 15. And there is a controversy in the church that we know not only from this passage, but also from the rest of Paul's letters, that this controversy becomes a central point of tension for the early church. And it is the tension between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And how is a person legitimately a part of the Christian community? Do Gentiles need to become like Jews? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to observe the law of Moses? Or does God accept them on some other basis? And so we want to look at that. I want to pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come now, that you would fill me, that you would help me to preach your word. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through Acts 15. God, I pray that you would give us a compelling vision of the free and full grace of Jesus Christ. Help us to appreciate it in its fullness. Help us to never compromise on it. And Father, help us to display it in our pursuit of holiness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So probably the big word that comes up in the discussion of Acts chapter 15 is the L word, legalism. And we live in a culture that in Western American culture, we really value our our right to individual choice, our right to direct our own lives in such a way that, that I think that much of what is not legalism in American churches, we kind of call legalism. And we're going to wrestle through this as we go through the sermon. But I just want to open it up with this question. What is legalism? Here's some things that make church culture sometimes appear legalistic to people. We, In many church cultures, people would frown on smoking. People would say, you're legalistic if you tell me not to smoke because there's no verse in the Bible that says that I can't smoke, Right? Some church communities have decided to practice total abstinence from alcohol. And so if they say that you shouldn't drink alcohol, they always say, oh, man, that's so legalistic. No kissing before marriage. Some communities that interpret Paul's words in 1 Corinthians to not even touch a woman, meaning that men and women should not even touch before marriage. So if you've got a leader in your church advocating no kissing before marriage, some people say, well, that's kind of legalistic. No front hugs? (laughs) So the no smoking, the no alcohol, you know, those are, there's a broad enough, uh, group of, of Christian traditions that we kind of know that those would be frowned upon. The no kissing and no front hugs, we wonder, are those really issues of holiness or is that just what makes us weird in the culture, right? So you've got to, you've got to master the front hug or the side hug, sorry, you've got to come around. You see them coming in for a hug, you got to turn. At Dallas Life, whenever I'm preaching down there, very often if I'm praying with somebody before I know what's happened, they've got their arms around my neck and they're, and I, and I don't feel guilty. It's okay. (laughs) So what is legalism? I would say these things are not legalism. They may make us think that church community is weird. They make it, may make us think that people are 
elevating some things in a disproportionate way, but they are not legalism because legalism at its heart is a belief that something more than the free grace of God through faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. Legalism has salvation in view. And we're going to see that as we dig into this text. Two things that I hope come out of this sermon today. I hope that we get to clarify what is legalism and what is not legalism. And I hope that you will catch a vision for receiving the free grace of God in Jesus Christ and for displaying the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're going to see when the people who are struggling with this, the the answer that the early church comes up with is one that the free grace of God alone through faith in Jesus Christ is the sole basis for salvation. But they also communicate an expectation that the Gentiles would purify themselves and pursue holiness in order to cultivate unity with their Jewish brothers and sisters. That's very important for us to see. So the big idea, the church must protect the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, while also expecting its members to display the grace of God through love and holiness. So our first point, protecting grace. Church must protect salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 first. And it says this, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Now, this is in Antioch. So in chapter 13, the church at Antioch is praying, and the Holy Spirit says, Set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to. So the church prays and fasts, and they lay hands on Saul and Barnabas, and the church at Antioch sends them out on their first missionary journey. And the first region that they go to is the region of what we would call South Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And so Paul goes through there, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's starting churches, and they circle back around, and they come back to Antioch. And that's where chapter 15 picks up. It says, some men came down and were teaching the people at Antioch, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But the apostle Paul just got back from a missionary journey where he was planning all these churches, and he believed that God was receiving them purely on the basis of their faith response to the preaching of the gospel message. And so it says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him, no small dissension and debate is the narrator's way of saying a big argument. They had a big disagreement, a big debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, verse 3, They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. What was it that all that God had done with them? It was what's described in chapters 13 and 14, that traveling that circuit through South Galatia and starting churches and seeing the Gentiles turning to Jesus Christ. Nobody really knows when Paul's letter to the Galatians was written. I think probably the most, well, my opinion is that he probably, when, when these Judaizers came down to Antioch and he, they, he heard what they were teaching, he sent off the letter to South Galatia to those communities that he had just visited and just established churches. After, after this council is over at the end of chapter 15 and in the early part of chapter 16, it says that Paul decided to go on a second missionary journey, and the first place he goes is back to South Galatia. 
He goes back to those places where he had just started churches, it says, and he was going through telling them about this decree and strengthening the churches. And so when Paul gets this news, he shoots off this letter, and we've we've recently studied the book of Galatians. If you're familiar with it, you know that it's probably his most scathing epistle. In, in Paul's letters, he typically gives thanks for the church that he's writing to. He typically gives them a really warm greeting, tells them how awesome they are. And in Galatians, all he says is, I'm amazed how quickly you're falling away and how quickly you're being led astray for a gospel that is not a gospel at all. There is no good news in salvation by works because you've got no chance of working enough to be accepted by God. The only way that you can ever be accepted by God is by the free grace offered in Jesus Christ. So they get to Jerusalem and they, they gather with and the elders and some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and circumcised them, order them to keep the law of Moses. So again, so they are not just claiming that you should be circumcised because somehow in God's wisdom, he commanded people to be circumcised. They're not saying that you would just be more holy or you would just be more pleasing to God if you were circumcised. They are saying that if you are not circumcised, you cannot be saved. You cannot be made righteous before God. You have to become like our father Abraham, who was given the sign of the covenant of circumcision. So the issue here is that unlike in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he definitely, he says these people that are teaching that, he really doubts their salvation. Now, the council of Jerusalem is much more gracious. They don't necessarily cast any doubt on the salvation of the guys that are teaching this, but they're sympathetic to the fact that these Jewish men who have turned to Christ are having a very difficult time understanding for almost 2,000 years, all of our history since Abraham, we've been practicing circumcision. We've been observing Torah. We've been worshiping in the temple. So why would an unchanging God suddenly change, right? So we, we can kind of sympathize with him. We, we hear similar things like that in our own communities. Why would, it, why would an unchanging God change? And so for so many years, to be a Jewish person, to be one of the people of God, was in large part measured by the metrics of these externals. Are you keeping the Sabbath? Are you observing Torah? Are you observing the dietary laws? Are you circumcised? And so these what we might call external identity markers became the things that determined whether you were in or out. So again, legalism is the belief that something more than the free grace of God through Jesus is necessary for salvation. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter's referring back to his encounter with Cornelius in chapters 10 and 11, where he had been praying at the house of Simon the Tanner and he had a vision. And his vision was this sheet out of heaven that had that it was a picnic blanket, I guess, that was laid out with all kinds of unclean food. And the Lord said, Peter, arise and eat. And he said, uh, no, I don't, nothing on that looks good to me. I've never, Lord, I've never eaten this unclean stuff. And it's, he sees this three times, right? Then 
when Cornelius's man comes to knock on his door and says, will you come share the gospel with the Cornelius and his household, this God-fearing Gentile, when he's explaining why he did what he did, why he went into the home of a Gentile, why he preached the gospel to Gentiles, when he explained that to the people back in Jerusalem, he said, I realized that God was telling me that I should not regard as unclean what he has made clean. And so Peter rediscovers a truth that maybe was lost in the Jewish history, that God is so holy that he is not defiled by unclean people, but that God is so holy that he can take what is unclean and he can purify it and he can make it clean. You see this in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus encounters the leper. In his world, if he would have touched a leper, everyone would have considered him unclean because the uncleanness of the leper would defile you and make you unclean. But the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And he lays his hands on the man. And instead of Jesus being defiled, Jesus' holiness cleanses the man. That's what Peter learned. That God brings his cleansing grace to those who are open to it. Those who desire it. And so he says, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe in God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So God poured out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles in Cornelius's house, just like he did back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He said, so if God poured out the Spirit on them just the way that he poured out the Spirit on us, doesn't that seal the case that God has accepted them? And he made no distinction between them having cleansed their hearts by faith Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Man, Peter's Peter's a great theologian. This fisherman has come a long way, hadn't he? He understands. He he really sees that this law that God gave Israel, as much as it may have reflected the holiness of God, it was absolutely unattainable for the human person and that they'd fallen in so many ways. And he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He says, so don't get confused. Don't think that we're just talking about whether or not Gentiles can be accepted by faith. But let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are accepted by God on any basis other than faith. And didn't didn't Peter have amazing credibility to speak this word? The one who denied his Lord three times and with curses who said, I don't know him, I won't have anything to do with him. And then for Jesus to come and meet him on the beach that one morning and say, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I do. Well, then feed my sheep. To to fall so tragically and to be restored, Peter had credibility to say. He said, I may be circumcised, I may have kept the Torah my whole life, but I can tell you one thing, and that's that I don't deserve the grace of God. I don't deserve it. It's only by his grace that we'll be saved. Not any other way. Paul had equal credibility. You remember him early on in the book of Acts that he was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. It says all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul, he's, he tells us that by the what of God I am what I am, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, 
Not because he was circumcised, not because he kept the law was he am what he am. He am what he am because of God's grace. Because of the grace of God, he was able to be uh, a proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Peter relates his account of going to Cornelius. Paul relates his account of going to the Gentiles that we saw in, in chapters 13 and 14 that we're told about. It says, after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. By the way, Simeon is Peter. Simeon is his Jewish name. So he says, Peter has told us how God first visited the Gentiles. And with these, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, and this is from Amos, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What word do you see repeated in that quotation? Rebuild? What else? Real small word. I. Who is it that's taken action to redeem the Gentiles? What Peter is testifying to and what Paul is testifying to, God himself has testified to in the book of the prophet Amos. He says that he is going to do these things. He is going to return. He's going to rebuild the tent of David. He's going to build up its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And the picture here is that Israel, in its disobedience and apostasy, had been judged by God, had been sent out into exile. And that's the situation that Jesus discovers when he's born, when he comes onto the scene. He's coming to a people in exile. And he, as the Davidic king, has come to restore the kingdom of God, but not the way the Jews would have ever expected. When he comes, he does, in fact, inaugurate the kingdom. But it turns out that his kingdom is now not just exclusive to the Jews. It's not a Jewish kingdom, but it's a kingdom that transcends ethnicity. It's a kingdom that transcends race and socioeconomics. It's a kingdom that goes out and invites every single person. And so he tells these parables about how when those who were invited to the feast that the king prepared would not show up, what did the king do? He said, go out into the highways, into the hedgerows, and find all those ragamuffins and tell them that they can come to dinner. Those who were invited but who thought that they didn't need my invitation, they're disinvited. But now the kingdom has been offered to, to those to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is the story of that invitation going to the ends of the earth. So all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old, therefore my judgment, this is James speaking, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So what do we see from the council? And first of all, let's kind of talk about what we mean by the council, because a lot of people have this impression. They kind of project a Roman Catholic view onto this council. Obviously, if you're Catholic, Peter was the pope, right? Peter was the original pope. But even evangelicals, Protestants, can sometimes project a really strong hierarchy onto this picture as though James is like the new pope. But this is, in fact, a council. So the church at Antioch sent delegates, it says they sent Paul and Barnabas and some others 
up there to represent the church at Antioch and the interest of the Gentiles. And they meet with the apostles and the elders there of Jerusalem. And then you also have this delegation of these Jewish Christians who are advocating for, for circumcision. And so you have a community of people coming together. So the council met together and they affirmed grace through faith as the only necessary basis of salvation. It's important to see, well, that they were agreed, that they came to a consensus, came to agreement that the only thing that, that can be the basis of a person's right relationship with God is faith in Jesus Christ. And, of course, Paul articulated this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'm sure you're very familiar with. He says, For by grace you have been saved. And grace is what? It's the unmerited favor of God. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Grace is not your own doing, or faith is not your own doing, and or salvation is not your own doing. And the answer is yes that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This whole complex of salvation is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I think one of the things that trip people up a lot of times is the relationship between faith and repentance. And even when we're sharing the gospel with people, we can sometimes present a gospel of repentance that can turn into a gospel of works. If you will turn away from this, sin, then God will forgive you. I think that biblically, the relationship between faith and repentance, the best way that I would describe it is like two sides of the same coin. They chronologically, they happen at the same time. When God gives someone faith to believe him for who he is, he also grants them repentance to turn away from sin. But in the order of salvation, we say that faith precedes repentance because repentance cannot happen where faith is absent. So faith has to be logically prior, although they chronologically they happen in the same time. We'll look at a quote from Sinclair Ferguson on this. But even biblically, these ideas are used uh, very close together. Mark 1.14, Jesus uses both of them. He says, repent and believe. In Matthew 3.2 and 4.17, chapter 3, verse 2, is John the Baptist speaking. 4.17 is Jesus speaking. And both of them are say, they say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand with no mention of belief, no mention of faith. And then in John 3.16 and John 20.31, you have John saying that belief, faith is necessary and he makes no mention of repentance. In Acts 2.38, Peter tells the Jewish people who are wanting to repent, he tells them to repent and be baptized. Acts 16.31, Paul says to believe and he doesn't mention repentance. In Acts 17.30, Paul mentioned, he says, repent. God is calling all people to repent, but he doesn't mention faith. So my point in all this is, is that we shouldn't think that it's one or the other, but they are so, in the minds of the biblical authors, they, repentance and faith are so closely aligned that they can mention one without mentioning the other because both are included in the same concept. Uh, so let's hear a quote. Sinclair Ferguson says it well. He says, Luther's, he said, Luther literally nailed this uh, with his 95 theses. And he says, Luther's, Luther's first thesis read, When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Repentance, then, is not the punctiliar decision of a moment, but a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole direction of life. When I'm talking to people, I, I call this big R repentance. Big R repentance is the repentance that goes with faith. When God gives you faith to believe 
and grants you repentance from sin, it is not just turning away from a particular sin. That's why in evangelism we need to be careful about telling people if you'll quit doing this one sin, then you'll be acceptable to God. We need to tell people that by the grace of God, he if he will give them faith to believe and he will empower them to reorient their life, to turn away from pursuing sin and self and to reorient their life to him and to organize their life around him, to orient their life around him. So repentance, not a punctiliar decision of a moment, but a radical heart transformation that reverses the whole direction of life. In the context of faith, the repentant sinner is immediately, fully, and finally justified at the very beginning of the Christian life. No wonder joy was released and assurance flowed. And he says this, at the end of the day, we cannot divide faith and repentance chronologically. The true Christian, listen to this, the true Christian believes repentantly and repents believingly. But in terms of the inner logic of the gospel, repentance can never be said to precede faith. Repentance cannot take place outside the context of faith. So that's Sinclair Ferguson, the whole Christ. And so what he's saying is just what I said, that faith is necessary for faith to be present in order for repentance to take place. And they happen together single event when people turn to Christ. And so the council, they unanimously affirmed the grace, grace alone through faith alone as the basis for relationship with God. But it's interesting to note that the council also unanimously rejected circumcision or any other external identity marker as a basis for salvation. And so when we're having the, the salvation conversation, there's no external identity marker that we can point to that can assuredly tell us whether or not someone is saved or not. And we need to resist that temptation to develop some kind of checklist for figuring out who's saved and who's not. He says, so the council unanimously rejected circumcision or any external marker. And Paul, he expressed this in Romans chapter 2. He says he, he says that the Jewish people had actually, if they had read the book of Deuteronomy, they would have remembered that God had said, be therefore circumcised in heart. That was an interesting thing for a people that was commanded to be circumcised externally and that that was the sign of the covenant that you're one of the people of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, he says, you need to have your heart circumcised. So what does that mean? I don't know. The image is it having the flesh cut away in a way that in uh, Isaiah, he talks about your hearts have become dull. In Hebrew, that's literally your hearts have become fat. In, in Hebrew, there's a correspondence between the idea of fatness and spiritual insensitivity. And so they say, sometimes they say your ears have become dull. Literally, it's, it's your ears have become fat. Your heart has become fat. You're, you're insensitive. And so this idea of circumcising the heart, I believe, has this idea of cutting away whatever makes us insensitive to God. And it exposes our hearts to God. And it makes us uh, feel... Uh, Ezekiel used the metaphor of exchanging a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. And it's the same, same concept. For no one is a Jew, Paul says, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And in Colossians 2.11, he says, In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And again, so I'm, I'm hearing echoes here of Amos that Peter, that, uh, James quoted, I will rebuild. I will restore. In these, in these passages from Paul, he's saying that God is the active agent. 
God's the one who circumcises the heart. God's the one who brings real, genuine faith and repentance into a person's life. God's the the active agent. And this is what a person has to experience to be part of the people of God in truth. So, So the church needs to protect this doctrine. It's interesting to me, sometimes we think that we don't think about the gospel as something that we have any responsibility for in, in the sense of protecting it. We just think the word of God is powerful. He's going to accomplish it and we don't have to do anything about it. This early church council shows us that they had a real concern for protecting the essence of the gospel and not allowing it to be distorted. And there are so many different groups out there calling themselves Christian today who are distorting the gospel. And we have a responsibility to fight for it, to protect it, to make sure that we're advocating for the true gospel. As uh, Jude tells us that we need to contend earnestly for the faith handed down once for all. God help us from being passive and surrendering the gospel to our culture. So secondly, and this is when we get into what legalism is not, The church must expect its members to display the free grace of God by denying self and pursuing holiness. I feel like this part of Acts 15 is usually overlooked. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. That's interesting to me that, again, this is not a pope writing a decree to all the churches everywhere. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. The whole church was involved in making this decision to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And this is what the letter said. The brothers, including the apostles and the elders. So I'm not saying that the apostles and elders had no authority. I'm just saying they had no popish authority. So we shouldn't think of them in that kind of So the brothers, the brethren, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch. So this is not a pope writing to lower church leaders. This is brothers writing to brothers. Who are of the Gentiles in Antioch in Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds... Although we gave them no instructions. So what are they? They're distancing themselves from these people who are teaching that you have to be circumcised. They're saying we did not instruct them to tell you that. Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So circumcision is not required, but we are asking you to do some things. We are in no way wanting to confuse this with salvation. These are not required for salvation. But if you want to have fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to ask you to do these things. We ask that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. And from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, scholars disagree about why these four. Why these four prohibitions out of all the things that they could have proscribed? Why did they choose these four things? Probably the best explanation is that these four things were associated with the temples of idols. So just like... Uh, you may have a club 
here in town with a membership. I don't know if you have Moose Lodge here, but they had they had the Zeus Lodge. And on Friday night, you go down to the Zeus Lodge, and they're got a big feast, and everybody goes down, and they eat together, and they've got temple prostitutes, and people do some things they shouldn't be doing, and the food has not been processed the way that it should be for a Jewish person. Uh, God had told them that you cannot eat meat with the blood in it, which means that, I don't think it means that you can't eat your steak medium rare, uh, although they may have not, but it means that the animal needs to be drained of its blood before being cooked. And so meat that is animals that have been strangled have the blood remaining in it. So many scholars think that that's probably what's going on. And so this is what they're saying. If you want to have fellowship with a Jewish person, you need to separate yourself as far as you can from anything that looks like idol worship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he makes a very long argument from chapter 8 to chapter 10. And he starts out by saying, we know that we all have knowledge that there's no such thing as an idol because there's only one God. And he says, and therefore, he makes it sound like it might be okay for you with that knowledge to go to an idol's temple or to go buy meat in the market that's been sacrificed to an idol, and it's okay. He says, but you might have a weaker brother who would be scandalized by that. You might have someone who doesn't realize that there's only one God. He might think that these idols are real. And by with your knowledge, you lead him to do something that defiles his conscience. So if you just read chapter 8, you might get the impression, as long as I don't lead anybody else to stumble, then I can do whatever I want to do because I'm free in Christ. But if you read on through chapter 9 and chapter 10, Paul says in chapter 9, even though I'm free... I make myself a slave to all and I accommodate other people as much as I possibly can so that I can win them over to Christ. And then you get to chapter 10 and he says, hey, and don't forget that when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, they were out in the wilderness and they made a golden calf and they they got into idolatry. He says, flee idolatry. Don't be a part of that. And remember when they were committing idolatry, they also got into some sexual stuff that was not, not good, not allowed. You, so you, if you just read chapter eight, you would think that he might say that, yeah, you can go to the idol temple as long as, you know, you've got knowledge, as long as you're not causing anybody else to stumble, you can do what you want to do. But at the end of chapter 10, he says, in fact, behind the idols are demons. He said, and I don't want you to have anything to do with demons. And so I want you, basically he says, separate yourself from anything that looks like idolatry. The way he might have said it from 2 Corinthians is, what does light have to do with darkness? And so this is what I'm getting at. In Acts chapter 15, the call here, it's not in their, in their particular historical context, pursuing unity in love meant getting as far away as they could from idol worship and all the things that are associated with idol worship. If you want to have fellowship, and you should, you should desire to not offend your brothers or sisters. By the way, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this. He says, do not offend Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. So here's the application because I got to finish. If you've got something in your life that is offensive to Gentiles or Jews or the church of God for the sake of love and for the sake of unity, in the body of Christ, the exhortation of God through the New Testament is that you would lay it down, that you would be willing to give up whatever you need to give up in order to create unity and harmony in the body of Christ.
in order to make your witness more compelling to people who are outside the church, whether they're Gentile or Jew. And I admit that this is a very contextual historical situation that we're looking at. But by the way, your situation is very historical and contextual. And there are some things that you may be practicing that you think it's okay because you've got freedom in Christ. But the question is, is there anybody else that it's not only is it causing them to stumble, but do they find it offensive? Are they put off by it? So I want you to hear this. Legalism is not expecting and encouraging believers to pursue holiness. When a brother or sister sees something in your life that is offensive to them biblically, and they exhort you and encourage you to pursue holiness, they are not being legalistic. And don't you accuse them that they are. Godly accountability is not legalism. A brother or sister walking with you, helping you to be consistent in spending time with the Lord, in exercising the disciplines that will help you to grow in Christ's likeness, is not legalism. I think some of us resist accountability because we've been trained to fear anything that feels like accountability. We confuse accountability with legalism. Legalism is not self-denial for the sake of love and unity. I kind of have this thing where, let's see if I can articulate this. I've had moments where I have become aware that somebody has an issue with something that I've done. And I may think that they are offended. And I think, hmm, is there anything in the Bible that says that I shouldn't have done that? Hmm, you know, I can't think of anything. In fact, if I look a certain way at a passage of Scripture, I might even be able to justify myself. And then something rises up inside of me and says, you know what? I don't think I did anything wrong. I think they're just trying to impose some false guilt on me. Do you know what's going on right there? Pride. Pride is rising up in me and I'm justifying myself and I'm convincing myself that I have all the freedom in the world to do this and it doesn't matter how it affects anybody else. That is not the spirit of Christ. And that is not what the New Testament church taught. They taught that you lay down your life all the way to death for the sake of others, for the sake of love. To to just give up clinging to your personal rights. Give up clinging to what you're entitled to. Legalism is not Fence building. This is a this is a big one. A lot of people feel they get into church cultures, and here's here's a good example is the alcohol question. So we we think that people might fall into drunkenness, and so we're going to decide that we should all just abstain from alcohol. And so you may have some churches that have a church covenant, and you go and it says, as a member of this church, I'm not going to drink alcohol, and it'll blow your mind how many people will sign that document, and and still continue to enjoy alcohol in moderation or not. If you, It is not legalism for a church community to say, we believe that in our culture, the abuse of alcohol is so pervasive and so problematic that we are going to encourage our people to just step away from that. So it is not legalism for them to do that. Now, is it legalism for them to say that if you drink alcohol, you're not saved? Yes, that is legalism. But it is not legalism for a community to say, we believe that this is so problematic that we're just going to put this in place to protect our community. Dallas Seminary, I don't, I don't know if they still do that, but when I was there, they they did that. They had a covenant that you signed and said, while I'm a student here, I'm not going to imbibe. Um, so, again, that particular issue has been such a hot-button issue in our culture that a lot of people are like, oh, man. But I'm just telling you, it's not legalism. 
you may not agree with it. And if you don't agree with it, don't sign the covenant and don't go to that church. There's lots of churches. But it's not legalism for a church to decide that they, they want to practice that. Secondly, uh, it's not legalism for requesting church members to abstain from questionable activities. So if your church asks you to quit going down to the Moose Lodge on Friday nights for the sake of unity and for the sake of not causing somebody else to stumble, your church members, you, you should, how do I say this? You should consider that. You should enter into conversation with that with humility and be willing to consider if you're, if someone makes it known to you that you're doing something that is troubling to them, that is leading them to stumble, love and a desire for unity should cause you to consider giving up your own. And, and I'm not, again, I'm, the way that I'm presenting this, I'm not saying that there's no conversation. I think there's totally room for, I, I don't, I think that the apostle Paul was probably trying to educate people that there is no such thing as idols. Paul was probably trying to teach people there's only one God, remember? And so all these idols, they're nothing. And so when you go to the meat market and you buy a piece of meat, you don't have to ask them, uh, was this sacrifice to Zeus? He said, you don't have to ask questions for conscience sake. You can just go buy it, take it home, cook it, eat it, and don't worry about it because you have the knowledge that there's no such thing as an idol. So there is room for dialogue and conversation. But, and this is kind of my point. This is what this, this passage teaches us is that the council at Jerusalem, they came to consensus as a community. And so all I'm arguing against, I'm not arguing for any of these examples that I'm using. I'm just saying that we need to seek consensus as a community on issues that may be controversial in our culture. And, and mainly we need to quit asking the question of what am I entitled to? And we need to start asking the question of what promotes love and the upbuilding of the body. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so I hope you don't mishear anything that I'm saying. Enjoying grace. Finish up here. The church experiences joy and unity by protecting and displaying the grace of God. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The free grace of God brings joy. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them, the other brothers. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. So I just want to close with this verse. Galatians 5, and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul is saying that if you're really worried about the law of God, don't worry about how close you can get to breaking the law of God. Ask rather, he says, these things, these nine things you can do as much as you want to. And it's never against the law. You can love as much as you want to. You can rejoice as much as you want to. You can pursue peace as much as you want to. You can be as patient as you want to be. And nobody will ever say anything against it. These things are not going to bring a rebuke from anybody. So application, do you need to accept the free grace of God? Do you need to display the free grace of God? So, If when you search your heart of hearts and you think about your relationship with God, are the metrics that you're measuring by, is it your performance? Is it your ability to keep God's law, ability to to live before him according to some external metrics? 
If it is, I think you need to accept his grace. Accept that you are undeserving of the grace of Jesus Christ, and yet he offers it freely. And all you have to do is accept it. And then secondly, do you need to display the free grace of God? And this is what Paul was telling us about. That Is there anything in your life uh, that is objectionable that you need to lay down just for the sake of love and just for the sake of unity? I'm over time, so I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart here. God, I pray just for, um, I know that just some of this is controversial, and um, I just pray that no one would mishear what I'm saying. God, I pray that every person here would walk in the freedom that you have provided for us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we don't need to be people pleasers. We don't need to be walked over. Um, but God, would you fill us with such love for one another? That, that we would not cling to our rights or our liberties or our entitlements. Father, would you help us to freely give up whatever we need to give up in order to have fellowship with one another. And we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, cleanses us from all sin. Help us to walk in the light. We ask it in Jesus' name.